I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 1, Session 2, Elements of Shakespeare's Mastery Continued. In the first session, we looked at Shakespeare's subjects. The next element of Shakespeare's mastery to be discerned is vitality. This is one of the most precious qualities we can name in works of art, but it is also elusive, almost impossible to define. It is some combination of inventiveness, authenticity, and vividness. As the word implies, a work with vitality has life in it. This quality is not tied to any particular form, whether comedy or tragedy, word choice or syntax, action or contemplation, or any other particular element of poetry. And yet, it is the most immediate and discernible quality in any work of art. When it is present, we know it because we feel it. Characters come alive. Words scintillate. Meaning dances into our consciousness. We come alive. And we love that. By contrast, a work of art that lacks vitality, we experience as drab, unmoving, humdrum. We may feel and understand it, even value it, but without the thrill that vitality evokes in us. This vitality is present in Shakespeare almost without measure. When Shakespeare says in Sonnet 130, My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun, we snap to attention. Here is a man talking about his girlfriend in an unexpectedly honest way, forcing us to keep reading to find out how he's going to get away with a compliment that sounds like an insult. He goes on to give a litany of the ideal things his beloved is not, but then ends by saying he thinks she's as rare, meaning as rare a beauty, as any woman the earlier poets have lied about to prove their love. He asserts her beauty and loves her after all. And we buy it because his unexpected honesty has taken us off guard and sets up the power of his conclusion, and the invention vibrates with life. Or take the scene when Prince Hal asks Falstaff, how long is it ago, Jack, since thou sawest thine own knee? That's in Henry the Fourth, Part One, Act Two, Scene Four, Line three twenty-seven to three twenty-eight. What more lifelike way could there be of evoking the fatness of Falstaff's body, and the self-indulgence in his character? It's a verbal trick to plant the image of a huge belly and the idea of fatness in our minds, but the trick has such life to it that when we hear it said, we cannot resist its authenticity. The next element is unity. Every work of art strives to convey meaning on some subject. That meaning cannot be put into a sentence or a paragraph. If it could, the work would not need to exist. In fact, the greater the work of art, the less expressible that meaning will be in any other way than the work of art itself. Only the work as a whole can get that meaning into our experience, and that's what it exists to do. Shakespeare's imagination is such that each of his plays, some more profoundly than others, achieves this unity of intention. Each play as a whole focuses all its variety of character, action, place, time, and language into a single experience of meaning. Twelfth Night, for example, is focused on the difference between self-serving sentimentality and authentic submission to love. 
Henry the Fourth, Part One, is unified by the attempt to define, not in words, but through words, the true nature of honor in personal and political life. The vast complexity of Hamlet is unified by the main character's spiritual growth from vengeful self-will into submission to divine will. One way of expressing this element of Shakespeare's greatness is as follows. Every detail in a Shakespeare play points to the center, and the whole is revealed in all its parts. But when you try to name that whole, as I've just tried to do for three of the plays, you find that the naming is not sufficient to describe the thing. My three examples are true, but they are unsatisfactory, as you'll see when you study the plays themselves. You'll get the unity from the plays, and you'll see that my phrases are only vague approximations of the real unity in each. It's the unity itself, not its name or description, that is so deeply satisfying in Shakespeare's work. The unified meaning of a play is in it. I'll return to this idea in chapter 15 at the end of this podcast series. The next element is variety. Shakespeare carries us to heights of sublime love, to depths of deserved or undeserved anguish, to hilarious funhouses of wit and silliness, to peaks of power, to the awesomeness of self-renunciation, the solidity of true friendship, the wilderness of betrayal, the torture chambers of evil, the Elysian fields of virtue. He commands every tone of voice, mood of the heart, and trick of the mind. He takes us to the palaces of the rich and powerful, the townhouses of the middle class, and the hovels of the poor, to places next door and far away, to ancient cities we've read about in books and fantastic places that never existed, to islands, forests, and caves, to sheepcoats, prisons, and ships at sea. He writes mostly in blank verse, but also in rhymed pentameter and tetrameter couplets, ballad meters, and formal and informal prose. He uses big words, small words, made-up words, Latin, Italian, French, German, and Welsh words, and more English words than any other writer in the language, 29,000 of them, including jargon words from the king's court and the law courts, from sailing, warfare, weaving, cooking, medicine, farming, taverns, bear baiting, and, of course, theater. He portrays rulers, intellectuals, and artists, lovers, parents, and children, kings and queens, nobles and their ladies, knights and warriors, tyrants and senators, doctors, lawyers, soothsayers, traders, sailors, teachers, nurses, peasants, hangmen, pirates, thieves, and gravediggers. Above all, he gives us variety of personalities, brilliant and stupid, quick and plodding, funny and dull, beautiful and ugly, virtuous and vicious, fat and thin, well-shaped and gawky, leaders and followers, kind and callous, and most importantly, mixtures of them all. There seems to be no limit to the variety of character, place, feeling, idea, and language Shakespeare can call upon to fill his made-up worlds with empathy-evoking particulars. The next element is freshness of wit. Here's another quality that cannot be defined, but only experienced. No matter how familiar you are with a particular speech by Shakespeare, the clever play of wit, whether startling or troubling or funny, 
always strikes you as new, sudden, fresh, and alive. Check out the prologue to the mechanicals play of Pyramus and Thisbe in A Midsummer Night's Dream at Act 5, Scene 1, lines 108 to 117, where Shakespeare produces hilarity through intentionally faulty punctuation. Or the lying Falstaff's complaint about liars in Henry IV, Part 1, Act 5, Scene 4, line 144 to 146. Or the gravedigger's quibbling answers to Hamlet's question, Whose grave's this, Sirrah? That's in Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 1, line 118 and following. Or the villain King Richard III's seduction of Lady Anne, whose husband and father-in-law he has just killed in Richard III, Act 1, Scene 2. The next element is characters. We know Shakespeare's characters. Once we've seen or read the play in which they appear, we know them almost as if they lived in our house. Sometimes they are more alive in our imaginations than living people we know. This is in part because of Shakespeare's vast emotional range, his profound empathic gift for entering into the psyches of human beings who are not himself. At the same time, his characters are also meaningful. From the major characters like King Lear, Hamlet, Falstaff, Romeo, Juliet, Othello, Iago, and the rest, down to the minor characters like the jailer in Cymbeline or Seward's son in Macbeth, Shakespeare's characters come alive as both real and significant. I'll speak more about how this works when I address universal realism in the third session and again later on in chapter 5. The next element is poetic language. Perhaps the most obvious way in which Shakespeare's greatness reveals itself is through his language. He commands the biggest vocabulary of any writer in English, even adding words to the language when he needs to. More importantly, he puts words together to convey meaning in ways that are masterfully precise, satisfying, clear, and entertaining. Watch him portraying Macbeth attacked by his conscience when he sees his own hands covered in the blood of the good king he has just murdered. This is Macbeth, Act 2, Scene 2, lines 56 to 60. What hands are here, huh? They pluck out mine eyes. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine making the green one red. Here's a partial list of what Shakespeare is doing with language in this speech. 1. Simple common speech. What hands are here? Conveying the idea that Macbeth is now looking down and noticing his blood-covered hands. 2. Non-verbal grunt or groan. Ha! Giving natural realism and believability. 3. Metaphor. They pluck out mine eyes, making a physical picture of someone's hands plucking out someone's eyes, or, more horribly, someone's hands plucking out his own eyes, to convey Macbeth's inner shock at the sight of his bloody hands. Through this metaphor, we experience his deed attacking his conscience. 4. Classical allusion. Neptune giving mythic seriousness to the situation, also perhaps implying that the ancient gods have not the power to redeem from guilt. 5. 
rhetorical question. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? Challenging the audience to come up with the answer. Is it possible? Another metaphor in the same line. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? Here the metaphor is of a vast quantity of water trying to alter guilt, implying the question whether anything in the physical world can change a moral condition. 7. Biblical allusion in the same line. Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? The phrase alludes to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Compare this to Hamlet in Act 3, Scene 3, Lines 43 to 46, where Claudius in soliloquy says, What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? 8. Interior Dialogue No. The rhetorical question is answered. 9. Moral Implication No. Only a change of will can alter one's moral condition. 10. Double sense of a word. In wash this blood clean from my hand, clean can mean both not dirty and completely or entirely. 11. Another metaphor. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine. Incarnadine is a verb here, expressing that the power and extent of moral guilt is greater than that of the greatest physical body, namely the ocean. An additional implication, the water of baptism or holy water can wash clean of sin because it is not merely physical water, but a sacramental vehicle of purification. By contrast, no amount of merely physical water can wash away a spiritual sin. Compare this to Lady Macbeth's A Little Water Clears Us of This Deed, Six lines later. 12. Combination of words from Latin roots and words from Anglo-Saxon roots. The multisyllable Latinate words, multitudinous, incarnadine, suggest importance, the weight of Rome, Christian theology, and the past. The one-syllable Anglo-Saxon words, seize, the green one, red, suggest simple home truth. Their combination here implies that the awful reality of his situation is one, whether seen from the universal or the intimate and personal perspective. 13. Invention of words. Before Shakespeare, incarnadine was a noun, meaning the color of flesh or carnation color, from the root carn, meaning flesh. Shakespeare here uses it as a verb for the first time, altering its implied color. Because of this speech, everyone who has used the word since has used it to mean turn something the color of blood. 14. Synonyms. Incarnadine and making red. 15. Rhythmic meaningfulness. Meaning conveyed by the way the natural rhythm of the phrases plays upon the meter. I'll be discussing the relation between rhythm and meter in more detail in chapter 4. 
All these language elements are woven into a single speech that works upon us with exactly the effect Shakespeare is trying to achieve. We experience Macbeth's inner condition with perfect comprehension while being largely unconscious of how Shakespeare is getting us to do so. Are you asking, are we supposed to get all this when we hear those lines? I will address that question later on in chapter four on Shakespeare's language. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.